0: Well, this is really going to be an overview message of the book of Philippians, but I will consider the first two verses our scripture text today. So, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I also pray that you would fill us with your spirit. May your will be done in this worship service. May you be glorified by our corporate worship, Lord. And may your word go forth in spirit and in truth. And not only inform us, Lord, but transform us as well by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Whenever we begin preaching through a new book of the Bible, I do like uh, to do what I just called an overview sermon of the book, in which we introduce the book, well, that way we introduce the book as a whole and talk about some of the overall themes of the book to give you a glimpse of what you can expect as we move through that book. Today I'll do such an overview message in combination with these first two verses of the letter, Paul's greeting, and as we just heard, In Acts chapter 16, the city of Philippi was first evangelized on Paul's second missionary journey. And we see in that account a couple groups of people who were converted at that time. We see Lydia and her household and perhaps some of her prayer group. We also see the jailer and his household as well. This was a church in its infancy, a church that Paul himself founded on that second missionary journey. Of the churches that he founded, even though there were so many of them, he often felt toward them as a father would, and he felt that kind of affection and responsibility toward them, that he was always wanting to be with them. He was always wanting to send letters to them, or at the very least, send an emissary to them. And this letter to the Philippians is an example of just that. As I said, I want to introduce this book, describe some of the background of the letter, The author, the intended audience, and even some of the circumstances around its writing. The occasion, the purposes, and especially those purposes often come out in the kind of themes we see dominate the letter. Those themes are what we end up drawing from as we preach through the book. Those are the themes Paul intended for the Philippian church at the time. And those are the themes we can learn from, absorb, and then end up applying to and in our lives today. So the first thing we notice immediately in the first word is that this was written by Paul. Even though it's been popular for the past two centuries or so to question the authorship of virtually every single book of the Bible, very few, even liberal scholars, question the authorship of Philippians. Nearly everybody across the entire history of the church believed and asserted that this letter was in fact written by the Apostle Paul, And also, there's never been much doubt about its place in the canon of Scripture either. Some people have believed that this letter is a compilation of more than one letter, but I think there's plenty of support to view Philippians as one unified, coherent whole, again, written by Paul, and the church has largely viewed it that way as well. Now, with Paul, it says, Paul and Timothy... This is not necessarily saying that Timothy is the co-author of the letter or even that he's, say, the scribe who was writing down what Paul's communicating. There are some times in the New Testament in which we believe that some of the letters were dictated and then written down by someone else. And the term they use for that, the fancy term they like to use is called amanuensis, if you recognize the root for the the hand, man. Uh, It's simply referring to someone who's doing the writing by hand for somebody else. So the author in a case like that would be speaking and the amanuensis or the scribe would be writing down the speaker's words. We don't necessarily believe that Timothy was in that situation either. It's most likely he simply was accompanying Paul. As we saw in Acts chapter 16, Timothy was with Paul and Silas and Luke when they went to Philippi. So the Philippian church would have known Timothy from its inception. So if the letter was written by Paul and Timothy was there, we see then that it says, and your translations may say a few different things here, to all the saints in Philippi, to all the holy ones in Philippi. These are simply ways of saying this is the church, this is the body of gathered believers there. Now, it's interesting then that he goes on to write, including the overseers and deacons, this is the only time in the entire New Testament that those two words, episkopoi, which is the word uh, as it was transliterated down through the ages and through different languages, so in the English, that's, that's the word that we get bishop. It's just a transliteration of that Greek word. Of course, the word bishop has acquired different connotations as church histories rolled along, but this is essentially the word that means overseers, and it's a word that was very common in the Roman times as a term in Roman civil government, but Paul is using this term to speak to the overseers of the church and also uses the word then for the deacons of the church, which again is just a transliteration of the Greek word that's used there, diaconoi. As I said, it's the only time in the New Testament that those two terms are joined together like that, and we'll see the importance of this a little bit later. Now, the city of Philippi was populated by a lot of retired Roman soldiers, a lot of Roman citizens. We saw earlier in Acts 6, excuse me, Acts 16, that the city was a Roman colony. It had been established as a Roman colony. And we see at the end of chapter 1, verse 27 here, we see Paul using citizenship language. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Roman citizenship was an extremely important commodity or status symbol in this colony. And so the fact that Paul is going to use that idea to relate to them and talk instead about their citizenship in heaven is something worth noticing and something we'll focus on later as we get to those passages. We see similar language in verse 20 of chapter 3. At that, po- at that point, Paul dec- declares, "...our citizenship is in heaven." Now, the church itself there in Philippi, it's not likely to have contained all that many Roman citizens, especially since we see how poor the church was and and the suffering that's mentioned in the letter, especially at the end of chapter 1. But take a look with me, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Just continuing briefly. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Well, Philippi was in the region, if you look at the map that you have before you, It's almost right in the center of this map, just south of what is now modern day Bulgaria. And even though the region of Macedonia that's on this map in modern day terms uh, is farther west of there, the region of Macedonia at that time actually extended farther east and included this city of Philippi. It's also considered part of modern day Greece uh, that that area, but at the time it was considered Macedonia. So, so in his second letter to the Corinthian church, Corinth is actually farther down, it's actually farther south off this map in, in what's modern day Greece, but you can't see it on here. In writing to the Corinthian church, Paul mentions that the Philippian church has gone through severe trials and severe poverty. And he uses them as an example to the Corinthian church to talk about generosity, generosity for the sake of the gospel, and generosity amid adversity. He's almost using the Philippian church situation as a bit of a shaming tactic. In 2 Corinthians, he's writing to a wealthy church, a church that hasn't experienced that same level of severe affliction. They have such a leisure-driven culture that there's all kinds of licentious sin going on in that church. We see that through both of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. But not to get too far astray, the point today is that we see evidence in Paul's letters, his other letters, that the Philippian church was, one, very poor, and two, had suffered affliction through trials. And so let's take a look again at the map here. All the way on the right-hand part of your map you're going to see a a red line that crosses horizontally across your map, and at the very eastern end is a strait called the Bosporus. That's what connects the Black Sea uh, eventually down through the Strait of Dardanelles into the Aegean Sea. That's what allowed people to go through. But at the very eastern end of that, and then all the way across uh, the northern part of the Aegean Sea on the land there, all the way over to the Adriatic Sea through Philippi and through uh, modern-day Macedonia and Albania, was a road, a Roman road, called the Via Ignatia, the Via Ignatia, and I think that actually is labeled on your map. And so it actually connects all the way near to, you, you can see at the very left side of the map, the very western edge, uh, what's the, the, the boot of modern-day Italy, actually. So, so that Via Ignatia was a major trade route from... Uh, Asia Minor, the Black Sea, all the way across that area of what's modern, the Balkan Peninsula, as it's called, and then all the way west to the Adriatic Sea and into what's now modern-day Italy. Well, the city of Philippi sat right on the Via Ignatia. This was an important road. It was a trade route, a route used by the Romans for traveling, uh, and the Romans maintained it so that this city was an... an incredibly strategic city for the dispersal of the gospel. And we see that kind of strategy throughout Paul's missionary journeys, the locations where he founded churches, and even where, as we saw in Acts 16, where the Holy Spirit moved him to go because he'd wanted to go in other parts of Asia Minor, where they were at the time, uh, which is modern-day Turkey. The Lord drew him, them together into this city of Philippi and eventually farther south into modern-day Greece. Many of these cities, and particularly Philippi here, were extremely strategic as far as people coming and going to hear the gospel message and then taking it with them as they went on their way. And a a modern day example of that from my own missionary experience, now I was not a missionary, but we visited close friends who were missionaries in the south of France for many years. We visited them twice there. And their home base was in a city in southwestern France called Toulouse. Toulouse is not the same kind of city as, say, Paris or uh, some of the uh, Lyon or some of the more ancient cities. In uh, there, is, there is history to it, but it's an incredibly cosmopolitan city. And the reason for that is that they have an, uh, a very involved and extensive university system, and it's very inexpensive for people to come from all over the world to study at their universities in Toulouse. The problem for those students, however, is that once they're finished their studies, they can't stay in France, they have to leave. And so a lot of them go back home. Well, what an incredibly strategic base of operations for missions work. You get people coming from all over the world during a specific time of their life, and it isn't just young students, but, but many of them are young, coming from all over, from China, from uh, other parts, from Australia, from parts of Africa, South America, other parts of Europe, uh, even North America, to, to get degrees, maybe hear the gospel and become converted and then take the gospel back with them wherever they go. So that was one of the the neat parts about that ministry was they did have ministry to an incredibly wide range of people from all over the world. Uh, Again, we met people there from Mexico, from Brazil, from China, from uh, Guyana in Africa, uh, Malta, from England, I'm just thinking of people off the top of my head as well as the students that we met in France. While, this is just while we were there for a couple of weeks ourselves. And, of course, this family was ministering there for, for now more than two decades. So we see that kind of situation here with the city of Philippi along the Via Ignatia. There's an opportunity for travelers to come, hear the gospel, and take it along with them. Now, this particular letter was one of the letters written by Paul in prison see in verses 12 and 13 of this first chapter i want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for christ he's describing the fact that he's in prison and there are several letters that paul wrote from prison and this one is part of what are often thought of together or grouped together as the prison epistles the other three being Ephesians, Colossians, and the short letter to Philemon. Now, there is a fifth epistle written by Paul that was also written in prison, Second Timothy. But that's much more likely to have been written from a later imprisonment, the imprisonment just before Paul was put to death. 2 Timothy tends to be grouped together with 1 Timothy and Titus as what are called the pastoral epistles, where Paul writes as a mentor to these younger church planters, Titus and Timothy. As I said, 2 Timothy is usually considered part of that group, the pastoral epistles, rather than being grouped with the prison epistles. But Philippians itself is actually somewhat different than the other three prison epistles, again, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And there's a couple reasons for that. The other three are drawn together by similar characters. There are named people that are involved in all three of those letters. And it's entirely possible that Philemon was a member of the Colossian church. And there are even some other reasons to see connections among those three letters. We don't really see those same connections with Philippians. The the way Paul writes in this letter to the Philippians, say in uh, verse 20 of chapter 1, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And see over in chapter 2, verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul's using language as if he doesn't know whether he's going to live through this imprisonment. He might be facing death here. And you don't see that that kind of language in those other three prison epistles. So there's a bit of a different character between this letter to the Philippians and those other three. The biggest question about the circumstances around this letter is, where was Paul imprisoned when he wrote this letter? And that question cannot be completely answered with full certainty. The most common belief is that this was Paul's imprisonment in Rome. But there are a couple of other cases to be made as to where that might have been. And the best other case is that Paul wrote this from the prison in Ephesus. If it had been written in Ephesus, it would have been written somewhere around the time frame of the year 52 to 55. So two decades or so after Christ's death and resurrection. The only other possible case to be made, the only other third case, is from Caesarea, which... Is If you look on your, it's way off the map here. Caesarea is way at the other end of the Mediterranean Sea in what the land of Palestine. But it's most likely, well, I'll say if it had been written in Caesarea, it would have been written in the year 57 to 59 or so. And that was when Paul was imprisoned when he, remember, later in the book of Acts when he appeals to Caesar and he stays in prison there for two years before he's transported. So if Paul was imprisoned in Rome then when he wrote this letter, which was the testimony of the entire early church, a look for example at uh, chapter 4, verse 22, the second last verse of the whole letter. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. That's most likely a reference to the actual emperor's household, which would have been in Rome. And so if it was, in fact, written while Paul was imprisoned in Rome, it most likely would have been written in about the year 61 or 62, so close to three decades after Christ's death and resurrection. So we can talk now a little bit about Paul's purposes in writing this letter, which, as I mentioned earlier, often shape the themes of the letter. First of all, he wanted to express to the Philippian church his gratitude for the gift they had sent him that had been brought to him by a man named Epaphroditus. If you wanted to, you can see that kind of indication in verses 10 through 20 of chapter 4. He makes it clear that he's wanting to thank them for the gift they've given to him for the sake of the gospel out of their extreme poverty. And we even see an oblique reference to this back in verse 5 of chapter 1 here. In your partnership for the gospel, he's talking about. Now, that word there, partnership, that's a Greek word that many of you have probably heard before. It's, it's the word koinonia, which is a word we most often see translated in the New Testament as fellowship. It speaks of the fellowship of believers. And so partnership clearly means much, much more than just financial partnership, but it probably does include financial partnership in the gospel with him, especially since we know they were not a wealthy church. The second purpose we see in this letter, and again, these are the themes we'll be drawing from and applying to our lives and to our church life today as we go through the text week by week, is to fiercely warn the church about the danger of false teachers. That's the entire context of chapter 3 of the letter, talking especially in that one about Judaizers, those who preach Christ not because of confidence in the Spirit, but because of confidence in the flesh. Now, those few of you who were with us back in the summer of 2022, you'll recall that we saw that same theme about the Judaizers in the book of 1 John when we went through that letter. And we see it in other books in the New Testament. You see it in 2 Peter. You see it in Jude. Even Jesus himself warned about wolves in sheep's clothing, and we see that in the Gospels. You cannot read the New Testament seriously and not come away realizing that the pattern laid down by Jesus and by the apostles held false teachers in the utmost contempt. False teachers were in the early church and are, according to the New Testament, one of the biggest concerns the church is responsible for rooting out. And if that was the apostolic pattern laid down in the New Testament, there's no reason for us to think any differently about false teachers today. One of the biggest responsibilities of the church and the elders of the church is to guard the flock against false doctrine and even against specific false teachers. In our culture today, that's not generally going to be viewed positively. You're too negative. You lack grace. Nobody shoots their own like Christians do. You've probably heard many of the cries from our culture and from various quarters of the professing church today. We need to build people up, not tear them down. Many professing Christians will tell you you're not being Christ-like if you root out false teachers, and especially if you root them out by name. But again, guarding the flock against false teachers is one of the most prevalent themes of the New Testament, and a huge responsibility for the overseers of the church. At the same time, care has to be taken in rooting out false teachers, and that leads us to our next and primary theme. The primary unifying theme of this letter to the Philippians is the theme unity in the church, and especially unity through humility. The city of Philippi appears to have been a place where I mentioned earlier it was a Roman colony. It had a lot of retired Roman soldiers, so the inhabitants tended to be enamored of worldly titles, rank, and status in society. That makes sense if you think about the demographics of their population. People who drew their identity, their sense of self-worth and self-importance from their titles and from their Roman citizenship if they had it. I think we'll be able to draw some excellent applications with our own church and cultural context here in Minot, with many of you having military background. Either you're currently part of the Air Force or, like myself, you've been a part of the military at one time. And for those in Philippi who didn't have Roman citizenship, that was something of a black mark on their social status. It could be an issue of their ability to support themselves or to establish themselves in business life or social life of the community. We see this theme of unity through humility, even in this introductory greeting, these first two verses of the first chapter. Look how Paul acknowledges himself as the author of the letter. He simply says, Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves, we'll talk about that later, of Christ Jesus. But for the moment, if you wanted to take some time this week and look at the rest of the letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote, Observe how he usually refers to himself. He's almost always referring to himself as an apostle, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. In some way, he usually refers to his apostleship. Galatians, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, First and Second Corinthians, even Titus in 1 and 2 Timothy, where he's writing to individuals who know him well and have ministered closely with him. He's still identifying himself as an apostle. But here, he doesn't. Even in 1 Thessalonians, where he doesn't refer to himself as an apostle, he still spends part of that letter defending his apostleship. But here he doesn't do that. So he refrains from honoring himself. He refrains from referring to himself with the most honorific title that he could use. He also addresses the believers, all of them as saints, as holy ones in Christ Jesus. So he's honoring the church. And then specifically, as we mentioned, he then includes and calls out the overseers and the deacons of the church. So in front of the church now, because this letter would have been read out loud to the church, in front of the church now he's honoring the overseers and the deacons of the church, addressing them by their titles. And finally, as a way of seeing the honor and unifying the body around the idea of humility, he repeats this phrase, Christ Jesus, twice in this first verse. Now, we know that the word Christ comes directly from a Greek word that means anointed one. And that's the meaning of the Jewish word for Messiah. But Philippi was a Roman colony. There probably weren't very many Jews there, if any at all. So there probably weren't very many Jews in the church either. Paul himself seems to be using the title Christ here as another honorific, a title of honor, Jesus the Christ, even if they didn't really know a whole lot about what that meant. The Gentiles there might not have had the centuries-long background from the Old Testament texts. In fact, there doesn't even seem to have been a synagogue there, because that's almost certainly where Paul would have gone first when he first arrived. But we saw in Acts chapter 16 that he went instead and found that prayer group led by Lydia by the riverside. That's where he would expect to find it, which is what some of the Jews would arrange if there weren't enough male Jews in a location to form a synagogue. So Paul himself is lending honor here to Jesus, to the one who most deserves it. We also see this theme of unity through humility played out very specifically in chapter 2, in that famous part of this letter that describes Christ's willingness to leave the glory he shared with the Father, take the form of a slave, and die an ignominious death on the cross. The death reserved for the worst criminals. That theme is expanded in chapter 2, and expanded beyond Christ, and and both Timothy and then Epaphroditus are held up later in that chapter as further examples of unity through humility. Then we'll see this theme once more in chapter 4 as Paul is urging the church, especially two specific women in this church that he names, Euodia and Syntyche, to agree in the faith and to be in unity together rather than continuing to be at odds with each other. So that's the primary theme we'll trace through this book, unity through humility, which as you can see in the bulletin is what I've titled this sermon series. But there's one more thing I would say about the book of Philippians as a whole. You see in the language that Paul uses, you see a lot of joy and rejoicing. He's continually saying things like, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice. And he talks about joy and greeting them with joy and the joy he experiences and that they can experience in the midst of their suffering. Look at the end of chapter 1 here in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He goes on in chapter 2 to talk about how he's rejoicing and how they should be as well. Verse 17 of chapter 2. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, as I read earlier, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me, he says. And he ties in this theme of rejoicing, not just amid suffering and amid poverty, but rejoicing in their citizenship in heaven. Rejoicing in something that they have. Rather than in the earthly titles that they may not have, but they may covet and even be actively seeking out, their rejoicing and their joy are to be in the one who is the giver of all joy, the one who has the only title that means anything important eternally, the one who has prepared a place for them in heaven. Lastly, there are two incidental comments here in these first two two first excuse me these first two verses that we shouldn't just pass over without discussing further. The first I've already mentioned but haven't really talked much about its significance is the fact that Paul addresses this letter not just to the church but also to the overseers and deacons. Although this is a passing comment with regard to the nature of church leadership— rather than specific instruction on the topic, we shouldn't altogether ignore the implications here, because Paul's comment does provide us some insight into the leadership structure of this early church. As I mentioned earlier, that first word we're saying is translated overseers, is that word which eventually became our word bishops. But over church history, and even only within the first couple of centuries of of the church, bishops came to be seen, eventually, as I said, as overseers over more than one church. And they came to be seen as a different role than some of the other words that are often used to describe church leaders in the New Testament, different from, say, pastors or shepherds or elders or even presbyters. This comment of Paul's to the Philippian church seems to indicate that he was not intending Episcopoi, to mean an overseer of anything more than the local fellowship. Because this was a fledgling church. It's almost impossible to conceive that Paul is using this term here to mean an overseer over several churches. And so this is one small, though not insignificant, piece of evidence that the New Testament pattern of local church leadership consisted of two offices, one group of leaders that were called by numerous different names overseers, Bishops, pastors, shepherds, elders, presbyters, a lot of names for one group of people. And another group of servant leaders called deacons, who were more involved in the kind of ministry we see instituted in Acts chapter 6, making sure that people's physical needs were being met in a biblically spiritual manner. In addition to that, we also see that in this one local fellowship, there was a plurality of both overseers and deacons. So this passing comment does give us a glimpse of local church leadership in the New Testament era, even though it doesn't necessarily intend to instruct us on that practice. The second passing comment is the fourth word of the letter. Paul and Timothy, and then the ESV here says, "...servants of Christ Jesus." But this is the plural form of another word that you might have heard, the Greek word doulos, a word that is most commonly used to refer to slaves. And we need to understand that the cultural differences between the New Testament era in the Mediterranean region versus 21st century United States are having an impact both on the translation of this word and on our understanding. You see, to our ears... The word slave contains all kinds of difficult connotations from an era in our nation's history that many people want to try to forget, and in some cases for very good reason. But the reality is that economic slavery, slavery for the purpose of fulfilling economic debts, was simply how society existed in that region at the time. And so the word servant here doesn't really communicate to our ears what was going on. These weren't just hired hands, The servants, the douloi, the slaves of that time, were bound to their masters. We see it all through the Old Testament as well, even in the Mosaic law. Often it was, as I said, to pay a debt. Often it was even or became voluntary because in that case the servant had grown to love their master and respect them and realize that this connection to them might possibly be their best case for maintaining a living. And Paul's using this term to describe himself and Timothy, these servants bound to a master, these slaves as slaves of Christ. They're bound to him. They're slaves to him. They owe him a debt, a debt too large for either of them to ever repay. And being slaves to Christ, they're no longer slaves to anyone or anything else, especially not slaves to their own sin anymore which Paul discusses not in this letter, but in his letter to the Romans, especially in chapter 6 of that book. So as we close today, be considering these themes as we come across them in the letter. That's what we'll be talking about as we walk through the book. These themes of Paul's gratitude to the Philippians for their generosity, the warnings about rooting out false teachers, unity through humility especially, that's the big one, and joy and rejoicing. And let's us all be reminded by Paul's greeting that if you've been adopted into the family of Christ, you ought no longer to live as a slave to sin, but you're now a slave to Christ, bound to him. Let's pray. Father, you reveal to us so much that sometimes just it seems so natural, but in other ways you reveal things that seem so foreign to us. It, it seems so natural, even as we live our lives, to live and still be bound by that slavery to our sin, to be bound by our sin, to be captured by those thoughts that capture us. But if we have the Spirit working within us, Lord, we know that you will not let us be satisfied with that. You will continue to work in us a spiritual war, a war against our sin, a war that we cannot hope to win without you. And so, Father, we ask us today, as we're about to start walking through this book of Philippians, and as we see what the Spirit moved Paul to communicate to them, Lord, show us that same willingness to be bound to Christ, to be so moved by Christ that you root out in us that desire to simply follow after our sin or to run after our sin. No, we want to run away from our sin, Lord. Give us the desire, give us the ability, and give us the joy in the process, I pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let us take joy and start uh, this idea again of unity through humility. Let's do our unifying ordinance, which is the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, which was given not to individual believers, but to fellowship of believers. It was given to church bodies. The, the Lord's Supper is to be practiced as a congregation, as a gathering. And so that's what we'll do.